When it comes to learning exactly what can happen to life as a result of exposure to nuclear radiation, few people know better than evolutionary biologist Dr. Timothy Mousseau. Based on his research on the ground at both Chernobyl and Fukushima, backed by over 100 published peer-reviewed journal articles, when you hear Tim Mousseau frame the question central to all his research, how much of the genetic damage that we see right now in the birds, in the plants, in the insects, in the dogs, how much of that is due to the exposure to radiation that they're getting right now versus some carry forward from that historical dose that they received perhaps 30 odd years ago when the disaster originally occurred, the dose rates were much, much higher at that point. How much of the genetic damage that was inflicted 10 generations back or 20 generations back is still being carried on to the subsequent generations? Good question. And just thinking about the implications of what the answer might be, one gets the sense that what he's saying is the hard truth about that seat we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a very special extended interview with Dr. Timothy Mousseau, whose on-the-ground research at Chernobyl and Fukushima provides the basis for much of what we now know about the ongoing radiation impact on life from those two nuclear disasters. Today is Tuesday, May 29, 2018. But of course, it would not be nuclear hot seat if we didn't have... Nuclear hot seat... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. As if the international nuclear warhead dance between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, they're meeting, they're not meeting, they're meeting, they're not meeting, sister, daughter, sister, daughter. As if that's not scary enough, now comes word that Air Force records obtained by the Associated Press show that service members entrusted with guarding nuclear missiles bought, distributed, and used the hallucinogen LSD as well as other mind-altering illegal drugs. The service members accused of involvement in what is being called the LSD ring were from the 90th Missile Wing, which operates one-third of the 400 Minuteman III missiles that stand on alert 24-7 in underground silos scattered across the northern Great Pains. Ooh, look at that pretty switch and all those blinking colors. Documents obtained by the AP over the past two years through the Freedom of Information Act tell a tale of off 
off-duty use of LSD, cocaine, and other drugs in 2015 and 2016 by airmen who were supposed to be held to strict behavioral standards because of their role in securing the nuclear weapons. How did they manage under the influence? Airman First Class Tommy N. Ashworth said, I felt paranoia, panic for hours after taking a hit of acid. Airman Basic Kyle S. Morrison acknowledged at his court-martial that under the influence of LSD, he could not have responded if recalled to duty in a nuclear security emergency. And one airman was quoted as exclaiming mid-trip, I'm dying! Followed by, when is this going to end? Others said they enjoyed the drug, but still... You're in charge of nuclear weapons. That's no time to be hippie-tripping out, guys. And even if you did do it off hours, have you never heard of a flashback? LSD had been showing up so infrequently in drug tests across the military that in December of 2006, the Pentagon eliminated LSD screening from standard drug testing procedures. Well, you sure got that one wrong. And that's why, U.S. Air Force, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. And now for this week's special extended featured interview. Dr. Timothy Mousseau is an evolutionary biologist and perhaps the world's leading biologist studying the effects of radiation on animals and plant life around Chernobyl and Fukushima. He has been a faculty member of the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of South Carolina since 1991. Beginning in 1999, Professor Mousseau and his collaborators have explored the ecological, genetic, and evolutionary consequences of low-dose radiation in populations of plants, animals, and people inhabiting the Chernobyl region of Ukraine and Belarus. He initiated a second research program in Fukushima, Japan, only four months after the nuclear accident began there. We were fortunate to speak with Tim just a few days before he was leaving on his latest Chernobyl trip, where he will be working with feral dogs that inhabit the site. This interview was recorded on Friday, May 25, 2018. Dr. Timothy Musso, it is so great to have you back again on Nuclear Hot Seat. My pleasure to be here. It's been a while. It has, and I know that you have a lot of information you want to share. Now, you have a history of working on the radiation impact on many species of plants, insects, birds, and small mammals at Chernobyl and Fukushima. But I want to start out with your most recent project. You and a team are about to leave for Ukraine to study the feral dogs of Chernobyl. I believe this marks the first time you were working with larger mammals. Why this study? Why now? And how did it come about? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting history to this particular project. We've done a little bit of work with the larger mammals, but it's mostly been looking at, you know, footprints in the snow or camera traps looking at at, at cameras placed through the forest. But we've never had any hands-on work with large mammals. And and a couple of years ago, uh, a group came to me and and mentioned that they were planning to do a a large spay-neuter clinic 
inside the Chernobyl zone as part of an animal control initiative. You know, every year, the wild dogs just, uh, they explode in numbers, especially as the tourism industry has grown as well. And so there's a lot of, you know, food being given out to these animals by the tourists. And so the population explodes. And then, you know, in the wintertime, the tourists disappear and the dogs suffer terribly. Many of them starve to death. Many of them get picked off by predators in the area and get diseases. And, and so the authorities at the power plant really were looking for some way to effectively control the population without necessarily just going out and killing them all. They'd actually tried that one a, a few years back, and there was enormous public outrage associated with, with this kind of massive call of, of all the dogs. So anyway, they approached a, a group of NGOs interested in animal welfare, and one of them happens to be a group that's been doing work in Chernobyl that's also interested in radiation effects, and we teamed up to form a collaboration. Uh, the, the group that we're primarily working with is called CFF, or Clean Futures Fund. It's a group out of Chicago. Lucas Hickson is sort of the main driver behind that group. I was going to say, that sounds like Lucas Hickson's group, and the one from Fukushima is, of course, Carrie Ann O'Connor, both of whom I've had on the show talking about the dogs. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, their, their interests are primarily in the, the animal welfare side of the equation, and, and that, that's really great. Although Lucas also does radiation study. So, uh, you know, clearly this was a good collaboration for us. Uh, we were out there last August for the first inaugural animal clinic, and things went pretty well. We uh, captured more than 400 dogs uh, over a three-week period, and we managed to, you know, get uh, radiation measurements for most of these dogs and put uh, TLDs on some of these dogs, little dosimeters that, that so we could track what their dose would be for the, the subsequent year. We got samples of DNA from them. Uh, we had a look at their the tissues that were being removed as part of the spay and neuter clinic. And so hopefully the plan is to continue this study, sort of combine this animal control study with, with a research study of the radiation effects and get some, some new information about what might be going on. When you say that you tested the dogs for radiation, what was it that you did? Was this samples of some portion of their body? Did you just run a dosimeter over them? Is this internal? Is this external? What were you looking for? All of the above. You know, when we bring the dogs into the clinic, the, the first thing we do is a quick and dirty scan to see if they're hot or not. And uh, any, you know, the hot dogs get <laughs> cleaned off just to make sure it's not in their fur and not going to get onto the people working in the area. The next thing we do is we actually do a whole body scan. We have a gamma spectrometer set up there with a thousand pounds of lead shielding. And we do a quick quick scan of the internal dose that they're likely getting based on, you know, just what the body burden of cesium-137 is. Again, the TLDs, these are these thermoluminescent dosimeters. They're a little crystal. And we encase this crystal in plastic and we attach it to the dog, usually on their ear or in a collar. And we leave that on them for some period of time, months, even years, if, if necessary. And this will provide an estimate of the external dose. And for a few of the animals, we've been trying to, to collect some of their feces, as it were, some of their poop, you know, to look at what the contamination levels of the, of the feces would be with these various animals. Clearly, the, the whole body burden and the, and the TLD external dose are the two measures that are likely to be of most interest uh, to the people studying them. How long are you hoping this study will continue, and what will it take to support it? 
during this time. I understand that you have turned to crowdfunding in order to raise the money for this trip, which is interesting for somebody doing such high-level scientific work to have to go to the world and say, here, can you give me five bucks? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, you know. I think we chatted about this last time. Uh, yeah, so far, you know, I've, I've avoided doing the crowdfunding thing, and just because it, number one, it usually doesn't provide enough money to really do the sorts of science that we're interested in doing. You know, the main one of the main goals of this particular study is to assess how much genetic damage has occurred to these animals as a result of the radiation exposure. And that's gonna take a year of lab work uh, on the part of several students, and, and it's gonna cost uh, many tens of thousands of dollars to, to perform. But right now, we're sending over five undergraduates. Uh, these are pre-veterinary students, mostly biology students, uh, who are trying to become veterinarians, who have experience with dogs. And so they're going over to Ukraine next week They'll stay for two or three weeks, and they'll help with uh, you know wrangling the dogs in the clinic, as well as collecting the the tissues and the samples that that will be the basis of a, a master's thesis or two, as well as some undergraduate thesis uh, reports. So, yeah, we've set up a little <laughs> crowdfunding site on experiment.com. If you go to experiment.com and type in Chernobyl dogs you'll see this project and mainly we're looking to raise you know twelve thousand dollars or so to cover the costs of the field experience for these five young students who are going and the great thing about experiment.com for us is that my university will match dollar for dollar any money that we raise there so hopefully we'll at least get enough funding to cover the costs of the students tickets for this trip let's create a picture for people of what the difference was between, say, the dogs that were exposed when Chernobyl first happened and X number of generations later, and I don't know if you can tell how many generations there have been, but all these generations later, what the impact seems to have been. Now, that, that's a really, really important question. And, and, and so, you know, it's been 32 years, plus or minus, since the disaster. Many of these dogs are, are likely to be the descendants of the animals that were actually there during the time of the accident. Although I'm quite sure that there's been some gene flow in and out from adjacent villages as well. Dogs do move around, they tend to follow the people. Actually, one of the things we might get a handle on from our genetic studies is, are these dogs really truly the descendants of the ancestors that were there during the disaster? But, you know, one, one of the big questions we face right now is how much of the genetic damage that we see right now in the birds, in the plants, in the insects, in the dogs, how much of that is due to the exposure to radiation that they're getting right now, the contemporary exposure, versus some carry forward from that historical dose that they received perhaps 30 odd years ago when the, when the disaster originally occurred, the dose rates were much, much higher at that point. How much of the genetic damage that was inflicted 10 generations back or 20 generations back is still being carried on to the subsequent generations because of being in the germline, in the, in the cells that, that are transmitted from one generation to the next, and you know, embedded in the DNA. Uh, and so we're hoping that by studying the dogs and by studying uh, some of the other systems where we can actually follow lineages through time over multiple generations, we might start to disentangle these different sources of genetic damage. 
the amount that's due from contemporary exposure versus the amount that's being transmitted from one generation to the next? And this, this is really a critical question. This brings up for me the fact that while you have worked on birds and insects and small mammals, rodents, dogs are different and we're starting to get closer up the evolutionary chain towards human beings, larger mammals. What implications might there be in the work you're doing now for our understanding of radiation impact on people? Anytime we have the opportunity to work on a model system that's similar to ourselves, it's just very likely that that's going to provide information of even more relevance, greater relevance. Uh, you know, birds are not so different from us, but they are different enough that you certainly have to stand back and think about what the implications might be. But when you start seeing consequences, and even the, you know, the rodents to a slightly lesser degree, they are mammals and they're not so different from us really. You know, anytime you start to see effects for those kinds of model systems, in those kinds of model systems, it, you really have to pay attention because it's very likely that the humans that are being exposed are experiencing the same kind of consequences. And it just takes longer for the human populations to show the effects than it does for these other animals where generation times are often less than a year. We'll return to that topic in a few minutes, but to stick with the dogs, I understand that some of the younger Chernobyl dogs either have been brought back to the U.S. or are going to be brought back for adoption. Is there any kind of special screening being given to potential pet owners so that the new owners either have a scientific requirement, they keep particular kinds of records on the dogs, or is it just first come, first serve, get a dog from Chernobyl? <laughs> I'm not totally familiar with the process that they're hoping to employ. As of this moment, there have not been any dogs transported to the U.S. for adoption from Chernobyl, per se. But this is part of the plan for the coming year. In part, you know, this, this is really about raising awareness of the problem, uh, not only for Chernobyl and Ukraine, but more globally uh, concerning the hazards of living in the Anthropocene, as it were. There are just all sorts of toxins in the environment that are affecting populations here and there. Certainly the puppies that will be brought to the U.S. for adoption will be screened for their health primarily to make sure that they are good candidates for adoption. Beyond that, I'm, I'm not familiar with what other kinds of screening beyond the, the basic health screening uh, is planned at this point. I was actually more interested in the screening for the human beings who are going to be adopting them. <laughs> whether, there, whether there are going to be any special requirements before somebody can have the dog that will slot in with perhaps scientific studies or colloquial studies that are ongoing. Yeah, I certainly hope that there will be some agreement with the prospective adoptive parents, as it were, that would permit future analysis of, of these animals just to see how well they're doing. We're attempting to start a few studies beyond our simple analyses that will look at, for instance, whole genomes in these animals and also in their offspring, uh, again, to, to attempt to disentangle the various contributions to genetic change. And so hopefully we'll, we'll have access to these animals in the future for this kind of work. But at this point, I'm, I'm not sure <laughs> if that's being explicitly incorporated into any agreements. Let's move this along. 
you're involved in many ongoing studies at Chernobyl and also in Fukushima, and this is yielding new information as we move further away from the start of the disaster. You have published some new scientific papers recently. Tell us what you've been finding and what you've been reporting in these papers. Yeah, the, the work that we've been doing has been growing over, over the last years as a result of new collaborations, primarily. A number of years ago, I guess about seven years ago, we initiated a collaboration with folks in, in Finland uh, to start working on the rodents. We've also been working with other groups in China and Japan and Hungary, looking at many of the bird populations. And I'm trying to think here which of the new papers we should start with. Um, the one that I really should start with is uh, perhaps our most recent paper, which looks at, it's, it's actually a reanalysis of some of the, the initial bird surveys, bird community surveys that we conducted in Chernobyl about 10 years ago, which we've continued to do sporadically. We're about to repeat them this year, especially in the more contaminated areas. Anyway, a number of groups have approached us to, to use these very unique data. There's just nobody with these kinds of data anywhere. And uh, you know, these are basically surveys or censuses of bird populations, bird abundance and biodiversity at, in the case of Chernobyl, almost 400 different locations over multiple years and the same for, for Fukushima. And, and so this past, uh, I guess this past week, we just published a new paper in collaboration with a group in the Czech Republic headed by Frederico Morelli. Frederico and his group ran our data through a new kind of statistical analysis to look at whether or not radiation was affecting the biodiversity and, and, and the different kinds of biodiversity that, are, that ecologists are interested in. And basically what he found was that, yes, indeed, biodiversity is dramatically affected by radiation in a, in a negative way. And much as we had suggested 10 years ago, it's just, you know, we had done it in a, in a much more simple-minded way, but they, they've done a, a very thorough reanalysis that, that incorporates modern thoughts about how to characterize biodiversity under different conditions. And it basically shows, again, radiation has a big effect, as does the change in the ecological setting that's occurring in Chernobyl. Now that there's no farming, you know, the, the area is turning mostly to forest. And so the combination, the interaction actually between radiation and the new prevalence of forested areas is dramatically impacting the bird communities. And when you talk about the biodiversity of the birds, are we getting more biodiversity? Is it less because radiation somehow negatively impacted them? Yeah, so it's mostly less biodiversity in the more radioactive areas, although there is this interesting little twist to it in that it appears that the community that is showing up in these more radioactive areas is rather unique in some ways. And we're presuming it's, it, it reflects, you know, sort of a, a, a group of species that somehow are better able to tolerate the effects of this elevated ambient radiation levels. I did want to dovetail that paper into this second paper that was out last month in collaboration with Carmel Mothersills Group, McMaster University in Canada. Again, another international group has reanalyzed some of our Chernobyl bird diversity data from about 10 years ago. And they were asking a different question. They were, they were interested in whether or not the sort of historical doses that were likely in this environment 20, 
30 years ago uh, when radiation levels were much higher. Whether that was a better predictor of the abundances of these species that we're currently seeing now than just ambient radiation levels. And, and this, this work, this analysis really kind of stemmed out of the, the observation that, that many scientists have been making in, in recent years that the effects of radiation in Chernobyl and probably in Fukushima are much higher than predicted by conventional models that the, you know, the health physics community has been employing to predict risks related to particular doses. In fact, there was a really nice paper by Garnier Laplace's group out of France a few years ago, in 2013, I believe, where they showed that on average, Chernobyl organisms were eight or so times more vulnerable to radiation effects than predicted by conventional models, which is consistent with what we've been finding, of course. And so Mother, Mother Sills Group, Carmel Mother Sills Group, took our data and recalculated the doses based on historical radiation levels and found that, as she, she suspected, these historical doses were actually much better predictor of abundances than contemporary radiation levels, suggesting that, again, that many of these radiation effects are transmitted across multiple generations. They're carried forward. And it's precisely because, you know, the direct effects of the radiation are relatively low. They're sublethal. Nobody, these animals don't generally die as a result of the direct effects of radiation, but they are affected their genomes are affected, their performance is, is affected, and this has consequences over for subsequent generations down the line. I think it's a really important paper, and, and it's really exciting to see these other groups collaborating with us on the reanalysis in, in creative ways of these unique data that, that, we, you know, that we've spent a lot of time and effort collecting over the years. Admittedly, I'm not a scientist, but my understanding has been that if there is radiation damage to DNA, that gets carried over through generations and actually then just becomes part of the genome if the species survives. Is that accurate or do I need to tweak that a little? Yeah, you know, so it's a fair bit more complicated than that. You can sort of think of it in the way geneticists think of it, and, and that is there is the germ line, the immortal cells that produce sperm and eggs and, and transmit the DNA from one generation to the next. That's a completely separate lineage for the most part than the cells that form our body, the somatic tissues. And so when we are living in the world, experiencing various kinds of environmental insults, often our bodies are affected. You know, we get cancers, we get other kinds of diseases as a result of the environmental exposures. Many of these are the result of genetic changes, of mutations in our body cells, but often they're not passed on to the next generation because the, the genetic damage is not to the germline, not to the the immortal cell lines that are passed from one generation to the next. And so it's very important, if possible, to differentiate between these different genetic sources or causes of disease. And this just hasn't been done very much because it's not easy to do. And in general, it's, it's extremely difficult to do. It requires complex 
designs, experimental designs that make use of families and you know comparing parents and offspring and, and grand offspring to look at the inheritance of different kinds of mutations. And that's just very difficult to do, especially in nature. So this isn't a question that's going to be resolved by looking at the dogs in this short period of time, I take it. No, and, and it's not because you, you, know, you really have only one or two generations to work with. One problem with the dogs is, is because they are rather promiscuous, it's often very difficult to, to know who the father is. <laughs> 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 you know, any puppy, you know, it's, uh, you can usually tell who the mother is, but often you don't know who dad is. And so that makes uh, you know, some of these more sophisticated genetic analyses a little more challenging. The flip side is, if we actually manage to capture all of the animals, all of the dogs, and we're, we've done a pretty good job so far, uh, we can use the same DNA technology to actually recreate a pedigree for every last individual in this population. And from that, we can tell who dad was, and from that, we can then use these information to look at what we call de novo mutation rates. These are the new mutations that are occurring in the germline that are passed from one generation to the next. And this, this will really provide absolutely fundamentally important information concerning the long-term risks and hazards of exposure to these kinds of mutagens that potentially are immortalized in the germline. Let's move on to those dramatically colored firebugs at Chernobyl. Why are they important to study? Yeah, yeah, we, we love these firebugs. One reason we really love the firebugs is because they're so visual. They're, they're so easy to see, you know, to look at it. And because they have this kind of African face mask motif to the, the color patterns on their back, it's really, really easy to discern deviations from, from the normal pattern. Uh, you know, even small variations in symmetry are easily detected by the human eye. And certainly some of the, the larger abnormalities that we've seen are, are very easily observed, quantified. And because they're relatively easy to rear in the laboratory, uh, they feed on seeds and don't really require much more than a little bit of water and a few seeds every, every week or two. And we can set up genetic crosses and look at offspring and grand offspring and cousins and you know, second cousins. This allows us to do fairly sophisticated genetic analyses of how these shapes uh, are transmitted from one generation to the next. So the first observation we made with these bugs, and, and it's been documented on, on TV a few times, the first sort of main observation was that the frequency of these abnormalities is much higher considerably higher in the more radioactive areas. And this implies that either the direct effects of the ionizing radiation are leading to these abnormalities, or potentially the ionizing radiation is causing mutations to the germline DNA, which are then passed from one generation to the next. And so we've been attempting to disentangle these two uh, sources of genetic variability by doing these experiments. Uh, again, a number of my students in the, in the lab have been rearing these bugs up. And unbelievably, well, not unbelievably, it's, it's what we expected. It turns out that if you take two, of, two parents that show these kinds of abnormalities, 
and put them together and let them produce offspring, they have a higher frequency of these abnormalities in their offspring than, than the population at large, implying that there's a you know, significant genetic basis to the abnormalities. And again, you know, these are just bugs, and so it's not really <laughs> you know, directly relevant to human health, except for the fact that what these bugs really do show really effectively is that these populations that are being chronically exposed to the elevated radiation levels over multiple generations, they are accumulating these mutations in the population. Uh, many of the mutations aren't immediately seen until the frequencies of these mutations get high enough that they're you know, more likely to pop up, you know, multiple mutations are more likely to pop up in the same individuals, but they're accumulating over time. There's been 30 plus generations of these firebugs since the disaster, and so now we're seeing very, very high levels of, of these mutations as a result of this chronic multi-generational exposure. Yeah, it's really really interesting when we, when we, again, we take even normal looking bugs from Chernobyl and we put them in the lab and we inbreed them. You know, we make brother and sister to each other and we do that over a few generations. And all of a sudden these mutations that we didn't know were in that genome start to appear in the offspring as a result of being concentrated by the inbreeding. Really exciting stuff. This seems to imply that there is a recessive nature to the gene so that even if a parent bug appears to be healthy, when it crosses with another one that has the same recessive nature, there are going to be mutated offspring. Exactly. That's exactly right. And uh, yeah, I didn't want to get too much into the technicalities of it, but you know, most mutations are either neutral and have no effect or are recessive and have you know some some effect but only when there are two copies of that that mutation in the same individual and so healthy looking populations frequently harbor lots of deleterious mutations but because they're rarely expressed they have no real effect on the population or their carriers but when as soon as you have either inbreeding or you know, you increase the rate of generation of these mutations, like when you add radiation, you start to accumulate more and more of these mutations and you increase the probability that two parents having the same mutation will come together to produce offspring and generate these abnormal offspring. So yeah, that's exactly right. This brings me to the point that I mentioned before that I wanted to get back to. Last March, I went back to Pennsylvania for the 39th anniversary of Three Mile Island, which I was one mile away from when the accident happened. While I was there, I had a chance to have a good long talk with Cindy Folkers of Beyond Nuclear. And she told me confidentially about some of this work because she said the paper hadn't been published yet and I couldn't go public with it. But she did say that your work showed that there is more damage created by exposure to ionizing radiation than the diseases we recognize as connected, such as cancers, heart conditions, birth defects, autoimmune diseases. She was, of course, talking about people here. And then she said, and this is a direct quote, there are what are called subclinical health problems. Not all diagnosable diseases, but conditions, including syndromes, that can come from a radiation-induced problem with the DNA and lead to radiation damage being passed along as the recessive gene. Does this research you are doing, even though it's on the tiny firebug, does it back up and connect to 
what Cindy was saying about subclinical damage showing up through the generations. That's exactly right. And that, that's what we've been proposing for many years, actually, in, in, in terms of the majority of the effects that we see stemming from this low-dose radiation environment. They're not in the form of cancers, per se. They're in the form of you know, just reduced overall performance, reduced longevity, reduced fertility. And you, know, you, can't, you can't pin anything down specifically to the effects of radiation, but, you, but across the population, you see that they're, they're just not doing as well. They're not able to perform as well. And we propose that this is the result of mutation accumulation or mutational load, as it's called in the genetics field. And you know, most of the mutations either do nothing or they have some small effect, but when you add them all up together, this has a major depressing effect on the population. So in the bugs, again, we see evidence of this mutation accumulation and, and the enhanced mutational load associated with that. In the birds, we certainly have evidence for this same kind of effect. And, you know, I can't give you too much details, but we've been also looking at this in the human populations in Chernobyl in Ukraine, where the father was a liquidator who then subsequently had a family, and we managed to get DNA from these trios, as they're called, their family units, mother, father, and offspring, and we managed to do it in collaboration with another group, whole genome sequencing of these families. Again, it's not published yet, so I can't go into any deep detail other than to say that the evidence is very suggestive of dramatically increased rates of de novo mutations in the germlines in these human populations. And so everything seems to be consistent among these different groups. And again, I think what really is important here is that the risks and hazards associated with this, uh, this contaminant, in this case radioisotopes, are not simply the direct sort of acute exposures or the result of direct acute exposures. They are the result of chronic and in this case multi-generational consequences that are transmitted from one generation to the next in the form of mutational load. So we're not saying that this has definitely been settled, there's no paper out on it yet, but this may have implications for those people who have been living in proximity with radioactive waste, such as the families in North St. Louis, around the Hanford site in Southeast Washington State, Rocky Flats near Boulder, people living within 50 miles of a nuclear reactor and so many other sites. And now especially Fukushima with the Japanese government's attempts to normalize perception of the radiological risks in that area prior to the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Yeah, I think these are all relevant populations for study simply because they're, you know, more and more we're seeing evidence of negative consequences to these populations, but they are inconsistent with the current models that are based on acute exposures. And so what we're trying to say is that those simple-minded acute exposure models are probably not relevant for these, or certainly not accurate in terms of the risks associated with long-term exposures that some of these areas have seen, some of these human populations have seen. We'll get back to our interview with Dr. Timothy Mousseau in just a moment. But first... Where else are you going to have the chance to hear this kind of information in this depth 
directly from the source, but here on Nuclear Hot Seat. In order to keep bringing you this kind of cutting-edge information on nuclear issues that affect us all, we need your support. So please, take a moment to send Nuclear Hot Seat a donation of any size. It's easy. Just go to the website, nuclearhotseat.com, and click on the big red Donate button. You can make it a one-time donation or set up a monthly donation of any size. And if you're ready to send a recurring donation of just $5 a month, trust me, this really does help meet the monthly bills. You can do so by clicking on the big green Donate button. That's for $5 a month, the same as a cup of coffee and a nosh. Whatever you can do to help, know that you are helping to keep Nuclear Hot Seat on the air and that you have my gratitude. Now, back to our extended interview with Dr. Timothy Mousseau. Are there any other studies that you have made recent discoveries in that you would like to mention at this time? Yeah, sure. You know, we're very opportunistic. We have limited resources and limited time, but we are very efficient. And so when we go to visit these places, we basically look around and see what's going on and see what questions we might be able to address, given what we have in place. And another series of papers, actually, that we've published in the last year with respect to birds, again, it may not, it may not seem relevant to human issues, but it certainly does from, a, from an ecosystem's perspective. So a recent paper published in the Journal of Environmental Radioactivity uh, entitled Cuckoos versus Top Predators as Prime Bioindicators of Biodiversity in Disturbed Environments. Could you please translate that for those of us who couldn't follow it? Yeah. The basic point of this analysis was that you don't have to do sophisticated analyses. You can actually just look at cuckoos. Cuckoos are, uh, we don't have cuckoos in North America, but they're common in, in other parts of the world. In Asia, they're, they're quite abundant, many different species. And we've all heard the cuckoo, you know, the, the cuckoo clock, for instance. And a couple of years ago, we published a paper based on our analysis of cuckoos of Chernobyl, where we showed that the cuckoos of Chernobyl, if they were living in a radioactive areas, their song was relatively short, and they were very likely to you know, make mistakes in their song. <laughs> and that was interesting. But these new papers show that, in fact, you can use simple measures of the number and biodiversity of cuckoos in any given location to assess how healthy that environment is as an ecosystem. And the point of this particular paper was that the cuckoos are a better marker or biodiversity than using raptors or birds of prey, for instance, which have been typically the sorts of uh, species that people's have, people have focused on to identify areas of high conservation interest. We've done a number of papers on plants in the last couple of years. For instance, looking at the pollen in many different species of plants. You know, the pollen, that's the male gamete of plants, the sperm equivalent carries little packets of DNA to, to other flowers to form the seeds. And we're quite interested in understanding whether or not the pollen is affected by radiation. So this past year, we published a number of papers showing, number one, first and foremost, pollen viability, the, you know, the, the frequency of dead pollen is actually much higher in more radioactive areas. There's, much, there's certainly a big impact on pollen quality. We've also shown that in areas where 
there's high radiation, the germination rate of the seeds that result from this pollen is much lower. So again, again, big effect on plants in terms of their ability to produce offspring and to repopulate an area. We've shown in wild carrots in, in Chernobyl, another paper published in Scientific Reports almost two years ago now, showing that the carrots that were growing in more radioactive areas had seeds that were much less likely to germinate and grow into offspring, and, and that the, their fertility, the number of seeds that they themselves would produce, uh, was dramatically affected. You know, I could go on and on. What this sounds like is that the entire reproductive system of plants, the pollen being the sperm, the gestation of seeds, the fertility of the seeds that result, it sounds like this is potentially a parallel for the problems that human beings face when exposed to radiation, because we know that the reproductive system, especially in women, but in men as well, is one of the first and one of the most deeply impacted from exposure to radiation. No, absolutely. And, and of course, that's one of the reasons that we focused on the plants is to, to look for parallels. You know, when doing science, you know, the, so part of the scientific method is to, to replicate, to see if you see the same kinds of effects or apparent effects in other independent systems. And, and so by looking at many different species, looking at different types of organisms, and, and finding that they all have similar kinds of responses, this is very strong evidence for radiation or radionuclides as the underlying cause of the patterns that we see. You know, the fact that we see similar patterns in both Fukushima and in Chernobyl for pollen viability, for instance, again, very strong evidence that it's the radionuclides that were released by the disaster that's the underlying cause of this, of this pattern. Speaking of Fukushima, I recall in our earlier interview here on Nuclear Hot Seat that you said that you started working on Chernobyl 15 years after the disaster there happened. And you always regretted not being able to get there any earlier because you missed 15 years of data. And that's why when Fukushima happened, you set out to get there as soon as possible to see if you could fill in that first 15 years after a nuclear disaster. Do you have anything new to report regarding Fukushima? And is the early data from Japan, which is seven years in now, lining up with the consequences that you have seen in Chernobyl? In other words, is there a continuum of impact that you can build out of the available data? That's a pretty good recap of the rationale for our wanting to get there as soon as possible. And you know, we, we did get there in July of 2011 to start surveying the birds and the insects. And uh, we've continued the surveys of the birds almost every year. I think we missed one year because we couldn't get there uh, in time. Or the, I think actually there were typhoons in the area. But we've attempted to, you know, replicate many of the studies that we conducted or first in Chernobyl, replicate them in Fukushima. And unfortunately, it's been it's been rather tough going. And so we don't have a a lot of new information to report. Uh, we do have some in the works. Uh, we've been doing you know, monitoring of the wildlife using camera traps. That should provide some interesting comparisons with, with Chernobyl. But the big disappointment that we've had is that the Japanese government and indeed our own government and other international sources of potential research funding have, have not felt that this was a priority and have pretty much ignored 
the disaster in Japan from a radiological perspective, at least. And so there's been almost no basic science conducted. There's certainly been no attempt to facilitate basic research on the part of non-government scientists or non-industry scientists. So yeah, I, I'm very, very disappointed with the lack of progress there and, and, and the lack of our ability to do comprehensive studies. You know, we'd really hope to be able to get into Japan and into Fukushima to do the sorts of massive surveys of the bird community that we did in Chernobyl. And, you know, that requires a fairly large investment of effort and time and money, requires a large team of people, and uh, it's just not been possible to do. Unfortunately, I think we've missed our opportunity to really fill in many of the early responses that we hadn't been able to document in Chernobyl. And we have not, again, not been able to do it in Japan just because of the lack of investment. The other issue with Japan, and, and again, I know this is a rather controversial subject, one that evokes a reaction from many different people, and that is sort of the scale, the magnitude of the disaster comments along those lines. And it's an empirical truth that the area of contamination and the, the amount of contamination on the terrestrial side, on the land side of Fukushima, is vastly smaller, vastly less than, than that around Chernobyl, even today, even given the differences in time. Chernobyl was a very large terrestrial disaster, it's still very highly radioactive in many parts of the exclusion zone and, and beyond. In some areas, the radiation levels have really spiked in the last few years as a result of forest fires in contaminated areas. Whereas in Japan, again, because of the pretty much limited amount and, and types of radionuclides that were deposited, the area of high contamination is shrinking rather dramatically. There's still vast areas that have low levels of contamination, but it's nothing like we see in Chernobyl. And that's not to say that there aren't effects, and that's not to say that we couldn't study the effects in Fukushima of these lower levels. It's just that it would require even a, a greater level of research intensity to, to get at the effects, because with lower contamination levels, that means larger sample sizes, greater numbers of samples will be needed to, to detect any of the consequences that there might be. So all that to say, we're really disappointed that we haven't made bigger inroads into what's going on in Japan, and it's not been for a lack of trying. You know, I've been to Japan three or four times every year since the disaster, and it's just been impossible to coordinate and generate a large-scale effort to study the consequences. We just haven't been able to do it to the same degree that we've been able to do it in Chernobyl. That's such a shame for the lost opportunity. You talk about the fact that this work is controversial in Japan and that you haven't been getting the kind of grants you might from the United States or Japan or any place else to support this work. Which brings me to the thought, how is your work being received by the scientific community? <laughs> that's a good question. You know, anytime one works in, a, in an area that's sort of on the edge, that's new, especially if you're one of you know, very few people doing that work, then there's going to be some controversy. All I can really say that speaks directly to that is we've managed to publish more than 100 papers now in peer-reviewed scientific journals, some of the best journals in our fields, most in the last 10 years, 
uh, related to Chernobyl and Fukushima effects. And that, you know, our group is perhaps the best cited group in terms of, you know, other people citing our, our studies on this topic. And so only history will tell us how important or impactful a particular work will be. But uh, based on, again, our ability to publish in the best journals and the number of citations that we're getting, it seems to be making some impact and seems to be received relatively well. (laughs) So, you know, that's the best you can hope for uh, at this point. Media exposure is always important to anyone doing research. It helps you make certain that you can raise funds and that you get the attention and that you're on the radar. I saw two short online videos about your work, one by the New York Times and another by National Geographic. Tremendously well done and quite powerful. How did they come about and have they had any impact and if so, how much on the support that you've been getting? Yeah, you saw those. Eh? That's great. Yeah, the, the, you know, the New York Times one was really interesting. So a few years ago, four years ago, I guess, I got a call from a reporter from the New York Times, and they were very interested in following the construction of the new safe confinement facility, this new you know, superstructure that was rolled into place over top of the old reactor. The Matryoshka doll, the number two Matryoshka doll and this nesting dolls of, of coverage over Chernobyl. Yeah, that's it. And uh, it's quite a feat of engineering in, in so many ways. And it's really, it really is wonderful that they finally got this into place. And, and, and hopefully, they'll be able to do the decommissioning that's necessary to, to really reduce the risks of future accidents. So this New York Times reporter called me up and said they wanted to go. And could I give them a little bit of a hand in terms of figuring out where to go and what to do? And, and they'd like to talk to me about my work as well. And said, of course. And, you know, we showed them around and showed them a little bit of what we were doing. And I thought maybe we might get a, you know, a couple of lines <laughs> in some other article. But they ended up doing a two-page spread in the Science Times about the, the work we've been doing, and including this uh, short little video that they generated that's on YouTube now that, that's had more than six million views so far. Uh, which is you know pretty extraordinary for <laughs> an ecologist. So uh, <laughs> you know that just doesn't happen. And so that was really wonderful. And and I kind of thought that this could lead to some significant attention for the work. Uh, certainly, the New York Times is one of the most credible media sources out there, as far as I'm concerned. And so that kind of exposure can only do good. Usually, it certainly provides credibility to the work that scientists are doing and a lot of exposure. Uh, More recently, we've had a number of interactions with National Geographic. They actually helped fund some of our work early on with small grants from their their Exploration Foundation. And so we're always happy to collaborate and to provide material for their shows. And uh, yeah, recently they have a new series on this this, uh, spring called One Strange Rock, which is a kind of a view of the earth and how it works from space. And it's really kind of an interesting take on that kind of a documentary. And they featured some of our work for a few minutes uh, on, on one of the episodes. Again, it provided uh, many millions of viewers and quite a bit of exposure. Unfortunately, as best I can tell, it has had, uh, all of this media coverage has had almost zero impact on our funding. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure why or how to make it more effective 
perhaps I, I need to collaborate with somebody who's in marketing, but <laughs> I, I really, I've been quite surprised that there hasn't been any kind of response related to financial support of the research. And you know, I, I'm just at a complete loss, actually. Well, I've got some friends in marketing. I'll see whether they can be available for a conversation when you get back from uh, your most recent trip. Okay. Just a final thought. Dr. Helen Caldicott, during one of my interviews with her, said that she thinks your work deserves and will eventually earn a Nobel Prize. <laughs> Do you have your speech written yet? <laughs> no. No, no, I haven't. Um, I, you know, I, I love Helen. Uh, she, she's a wonderful uh, advocate for science in this area, and she's, she's always been a big supporter. And I really value her opinion of our work. And uh, the fact that she would say something like that speaks well for us. Unfortunately, there, there, there are no prizes in this area. <laughs> there is no Nobel Prize for radiation research. So uh, we're, we're out of luck in that regard. <laughs> but, you know, I can say that some of our collaborators were quite involved in the effort to ban nuclear weapons, the ICANN effort that won the Nobel Peace Prize last year. And we've actually published chapters and books with, with some of these folks. And, and certainly we're very supportive of the work that they're doing. As am I and as is this show. Anything else you'd like to add at this time? That's it for now. Uh, I, I've got to get back to preparing for a month of field work in Chernobyl. <laughs> and I, I do want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to chat with you again today. It's been my pleasure, as well as that of the listeners to the program. And of course, I will be posting links to many of your papers, as well as the two videos that we mentioned from the New York Times and National Geographic. For now, Timothy Musso, bless you for the work that you are doing. It's extraordinary. It's unprecedented. It's so important to our understanding of what's going on. And I really want to thank you for having this much time to spend with the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Safe journey to you. Dr. Timothy Musso. We will have links to his work and a direct link to the donation page for the Chernobyl Dogs Project up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 362. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 29, 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from msn.com, nbcnews.com, and the Associated Press. We are copyright 2018, Libby Halevi and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues from around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. We really appreciate your support. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we can always come up with the date that a nuclear emergency starts, but we can never come up with the date that it's over because it's never over. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. (laughs) 